Well, this morning we're continuing in First Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2, um, verses 11 through 17. And today, Peter is going to talk about two things that should always go together. And we know a lot of things that always go together, right? Like peanut butter and jelly, or salt and pepper, or shoes and socks, or macaroni and cheese, soap and water. And so we know when we hear these things, when you hear one, you expect to hear the other. When you, or when you talk about one, you expect to find the other one. And the, the same thing is true for what Peter is going to shift to this morning. Um, so far, we've seen him kind of give us a theological background, um, kind of understanding what he's talking about, the foundation of the gospel. And so he's set the stage in what we are calling, I'm going to call what he's done so far is orthodoxy, which is the doctrine that we believe as evangelical Christians. And so today, Peter's going to pair that with what we would call orthopraxy, which is the practice of those beliefs. And so he wants us to see that those two things should always come together. Your belief should influence the way that you live. And so those two things should always be paired together. Because if you say you believe something, but you don't live it out or it doesn't affect your life, then do you really believe that, right? Do you really believe that to be too? And so that's what Peter is going to be talking about this morning. Kind of the rest of the book of the letter is about what it looks like to live in, his, in this time as a Christian. And so for the next few weeks, the theme is going to be submission, or to submit to things, which I know is everybody's favorite thing to do, right? Is submitting to other authorities besides ourselves. But in these things we're going to see today, he's going to call citizens to submit to rulers and governors. Then he's going to talk about servants submitting to their masters, um, wives submitting to their husbands, and in a, a deeper sense a little bit after that, husbands submitting to their wives, and then Christians submitting to one another. And so the next few weeks, the theme is going to be about submitting. And so this, you'll understand once we read it in a minute, but um, we preach regularly through books of the Bible, and one of the complaints that sometimes people have is, well, when you do that, you miss the opportunity, or you have to come out of what you're preaching to talk about issues or what's going on in the world around you, and so you have to interrupt that. And sometimes that's valid, but I think that God knows what He's doing no matter what. Right? And so today we're talking about submitting to government authorities in the middle of a pandemic. Right? And if we would have preached this two months ago, when we were scheduled to preach it, it would have sounded very different than it's going to sound this morning. And our experience would have been very different than what we're experiencing right now. So I think God, even in that, can prepare things and know what is happening. Right? That we're in a situation where the government is restricting our freedoms a little bit more than we're used to. Right? And we're dealing with issues of injustice all around us. And so God's providence has brought us here in this time. Um, I also want to ask for grace as I talk about submitting to government authorities, because I know anytime you talk about the government or politics or anything like that right now, um, just the smallest thing causes big ripples and effects. And so I am not... I'm doing everything I can not to take sides or say who is right and who is wrong or anything like that. I'm just trying to present, prevent, present the facts. So if it sounds like I'm 
complaining about one side or another or saying one is better than the other, um, then I made a mistake because I'm trying very hard not to do that. So I'm just asking for grace in that as we kind of talk about these things this morning. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 through 17 this morning. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, or submit, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. We're going to be working through that kind of in sections of how it mean, what it means for us to actually live our life as Christians in the midst of the situation that first Peter was in when he was talking in, and then to us as well. So I think the, the first thing it calls us to do is to live a holy life. We've kind of been talking about that a little bit along the way, right? But he starts with beloved or dear friends. And so this is a, a signal that he's shifting in the letter, and he's going to tell everybody how they should live in the rest of it. And so he talks to them in their status as a couple of different things. First, right, he calls them as sojourners and exiles or strangers and exiles in the land. So it's a reminder, right, that we're here temporarily. We're just kind of awaiting the end time when Jesus comes back. And so we're in this place temporarily. But he's also addressing them as their status as God's people. Remember last week we talked about being um, a holy nation, a people his, for his possession, a kingdom of priests. And so he's saying, because of that, because of who you are in Christ, this is how you should live, right? And he calls us to live holy. And when we talk about living as a holy life, we're talking about living a life that is set apart for God's purposes. It doesn't mean we're holier than thou or better than anybody else or you're a goody two-shoes. That's not what he means when he says holy. He means set apart for God's purposes, and so when we do that, he asks us to abstain from um, selfish, fleshly desires. And when he uses the word abstain, it, it really means to constantly hold yourself back from, right? To constantly battle against us, to kind of prevent yourself from doing those things that tempt us. To resist the, the sinward pull of the world in our lives to do the things that the world is doing. It reminds me of um, a quote from a guy named John Owen who was way back in the 1600s, and he's pretty famous for this line. It's, it's be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so essentially he's saying if you're not battling your sin every day, then it is taking control of you. And so that's the concept of abstaining, of constantly battling against your sinful desires. And so in view of our status as God's people... We put those things away. We battle against those desires, the attractions of the world. And so we do those in a way that honors God. And so we see this concept again in 1 John 2, which um, Jack read this morning. I just want to read the second part of it for you. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So it's kind of a similar concept of avoiding fleshly desires, of doing what the world calls us to do or asks us to do or pushes us to do and following God, right? But when we do that, it's not necessarily a call to withdraw from the world, um, to hide from it, but just to the world's standard of behavior, right? We don't decide how to live. We don't decide what we should do by the culture of the world or the culture around us, but from our home culture of heaven, which is where we're ultimately going to end up. Because we understand as believers, we are just here temporarily, and that after we die, we'll be in heaven with God for all eternity, which will be a much longer time than you've been on the earth, no matter how old you are in the room this morning. You're going to be in heaven longer than you've been here, right? And so I understand sometimes it's a struggle of how to do that or how to understand what we're supposed to do. Right? How do we relate to things like governing authorities as Christians? How do we relate to social conventions? How do we see this in our marriages, in our families? Do we become isolationists? Do we just pull out of everything and form our own communities where we don't interact with anybody from the outside world? Or do we become subversives where we kind of enter the culture sort of secretly and try to change what they're doing to do it the way that we want them to do? Or we just conform and say, the world is too powerful, everybody else is already doing it, so we should just give in and do what they are doing. So how do we do that? Which one of those are we supposed to do, or any of those, or something else? Right? But the call from God is, is the same, and it's this. Jesus gives it to us in Matthew chapter 5, and this is going to sound very familiar. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? It's a similar concept to what he's talking about here. As people see how you live, as people look at your life, and you're seeking the way that the Bible calls you to live, then it will reveal who God is to those people, and they will see him through us in the way that we live. And the way that we live should point to God and his goodness and his grace and his mercy. And so if they see us, right, which is the second part of this, and they accuse us, right, at some point they'll see that we are actually good people, even good citizens, which is what this is talking about, and say, I thought I could accuse that Christian of doing these things, but now that I watch them, now that I see them, I just can't do it anymore. I know that what I'm saying is not true about them. But... He does give us a little bit of an out on this one because he says that may not happen while you're alive on the earth. But at some point, the people that accuse believers of doing bad things or leading people astray, they will see the truth. And when he says the day of visitation, that means when Jesus returns and they're standing face to face to God, with God, and they see him, that in that moment, they're going to say, I was wrong, and the Christians were right, and I should have listened, and I shouldn't have accused them, and I shouldn't have slandered them, and I shouldn't have gone against them, right? But they will see that in us eventually at some point, whether it's on this earth or once they're standing before God. And we do try to do good things, not because, of who we, not because we're great people, but because of what Christ has done through us, that he has saved us and he has renewed us and he has changed our desires and he enables us to live holy lives. That's the only way that we 
will be good. And so the end goal of this is that God gets the glory, right? He gets the glory no matter what, whether it's in this life or the life to come. We can say, I can only do what I'm doing because God does it through me, okay? So then we're going to get to the next part that starts in verse 13 through 17, and this is to live as good citizens. How do we live as good citizens, as believers in this time? I think the first thing it calls us to do is to be subject to the governing authorities, right? He says in this section a couple of times, he starts with, for the Lord's sake, and then later he says, it is, for this is God's will, right? That we should obey the governing authorities. And so our obedience to the governing authorities actually fulfills God's and serves God's purpose. Now, notice there are no qualifiers here. It doesn't say, if you live in a safe country with the freedom of religion, then obey your governing authorities. It doesn't say, if you like the person in charge, you should obey the governing authorities. It doesn't say, if you think the leaders are Christians or not, you should obey the governing authorities. He simply says, submit to the governing authorities. So this would include, in principle, people living in hard places and having leaders who are not believers. Keep in mind that when Peter wrote this, Nero is the emperor. And if you don't know the history of Nero, which I'm not sure how many people do, so Nero was maybe a little crazy, um, but at one point there was a big fire and at least, well, most historians actually say that Nero was actually behind the fire because he wanted to Take, do, rebuild a little bit, and so he just burned everything down so he could kind of start over. But what happened after the fire was he blamed Christians for setting the fire. And then he would round them up, and he would torture them, and he would execute them, like, in front of everybody. And so that's the guy, when he says emperor, that's who Peter's talking about in this time. And so that would be a time I would think you would not want to write, obey the governing authorities when that guy is in charge, right? But I, I do also just want to mention kind of as a side note, this is much easier for us to talk about because of where we are this morning, right? There's nobody listening into us. There's nobody saying we can say this or can't say that. There's nobody here or anything like that. If we were in a hard place that was hostile to Christianity, this would be a little different conversation, a little bit different sermon. Not the principles, I don't think, but the applications of what that looks like would look very different, say, in a place in, the, in East Asia where you're not as free to say those things. So I, I understand this would sound different in other places. We are very blessed to be where we are with the freedoms that we have. But the question I had when I was li kind of listening to this is, why is God asking us to do this? Why is he asking us to submit to governing authorities? And the first reason is to silence those who would accuse Christians, right? People who would say, look, the Christians aren't living the same way as us. They're ignoring the laws. They aren't paying their taxes. They're trying to overtake the government, right? Which is, remember, if you remember, that's what they accused Jesus of, right? That he was a revolutionary and he was trying to overthrow the government and become king, Right? And so 
we're trying to show that we're not living necessarily according to a different standard. So he's saying, just take that away. Just live according to the laws of the land. Obey the same laws as everybody else. And I know some of you are going, but aren't there some laws or things that we shouldn't obey because they're unbiblical? We're going to get there in a minute. So just hang on. I know some people will go there, right? But he wants us to do that to silence some of those things, to help us in that. The second reason is, is because God has appointed our government leaders. We see this very clearly in Romans chapter 13. I'm just going to read the first four verses, but if you want to read, it goes on longer than this. So if you want to read something this afternoon that talks about this issue, you can read the rest of Romans 13. But it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the verses in Romans are a little more clear in what this looks like, right? But what he's trying to get us to see is that God appointed the government itself, right? And its leaders for his purposes. He gives us government generally for a few things, right? One is to preserve life, to keep us all alive in the same place. He gives us a government as an instrument for justice and also to preserve social order. Government essentially exists to keep things from turning into chaos, right? If there was no government, if there were no laws, there would be no stop signs, no stoplights, no right, no wrong, no justice for anybody who violated any of those things. Everybody could essentially just do whatever they wanted, right? And so government is good in those things that you know, having stoplights keeps us alive a little bit longer and doing those kind of things. And so it is good for us. And so God has given this power to governments so that they have the authority, not in themselves, which some people may say, but because their authority is given to them by God. Any authority is given by God to others. And so because God has appointed them, we are called to obey them. And God has ordained that this is the way things should work. And so we live according to God's plans and purposes. And there's a lot of other questions and issues that are wrapped up in this. I get that. One is, is there a difference between the government's authority and the church's authority? Or should those be the same thing? Um, I think the short answer is they are a little bit different. The government, I think, has what's called the power of the sword, which is justice and um, keeping people safe and enforcing the laws. And then the church has what I would call the power of the keys, right? When he says the keys of the, king, of the heaven are given to you. And so those are two different issues. That's for another day. Um, there's also questions of, should the church take on governing responsibilities? Should we try to influence, impact, serve in government? Um, also, are there issues the whole church should be doing? Like, should we as a church be supporting our f- certain issues in response to the government, or we just say, well, each individual, a Christian, is free to do things 
and support and protest or whatever it is how they want. And so those are other questions just to throw in there just for things to think about because there's all kinds of things that are wrapped up in this issue. But there, here's where we get to this question, right? Are there times when we should not submit to the government? And we are living in a time where we have a very good example of what this should look like because we just came out, well, we didn't come out yet. We hope, I hope we are, but um, we're in the midst of this pandemic where the government said, hey, nobody can go anywhere anymore and nobody can meet. And so the conversation among pastors is, what does that mean for us? Because technically the government shouldn't be able to tell churches whether they can meet or not. And that's sort of true. But in this situation, what happened was they told, the government told everyone that you couldn't meet, right? It wasn't just churches, it was restaurants, it was people working, it was movie theaters, every, shopping places, everything. Like, don't do that. Essentially, the only thing that should have been open was grocery stores, that kind of thing, right? So because of that, I think it was right for churches to follow those directions because they were ultimately trying to preserve the lives of the people in the city and the people around us. Now, the question then became, well, what if they open up everything else, but they still tell churches they can't meet, right? That's a very different question, right? Then the government is isolating churches and treating them differently than anyone else. And so luckily for us, we didn't have to deal with that. But if we did, I think there may have been some protesting or calling government officials and saying, I don't think you can do that, and I think churches should still be able to meet just like they, they, everyone else. And so um, that's one of the ways I feel blessed just to be in a place where we don't have to worry about that. There were some states that kind of had that issue, but we in Texas didn't have that. And so that may be one of the times when we would say, we need to do something about that. We need to um, call somebody, kind of make an issue of this to say, hey, you're treating churches differently. And in our country, based on our laws, you're not supposed to do that. And so another issue, which we've seen recently as well, is when the government, how do you respond when the government isn't acting justly? When they're treating some groups of people differently than others? or some people are having a different experience of the laws than other people are. How do you respond to that? What does that look like? Right, And we've seen that in the news the last few weeks. Um, I think regardless of, of your views of that, I think most of us will acknowledge that people are being treated differently than others. And so how do you respond to that? And some of the responses that we've seen in the last few weeks have been good. right? People having conversations, people listening to one another, people peacefully protesting, I think all of those things are good. And so if we're in a situation where churches are being treated unjustly or people are doing that kind of thing, I think some of those things we can do. But um, there are wrong ways to do it, which I think we all see. So our job is to watch and to bring attention to the government who is treating people unjustly, whether it's to Christians or to a certain group whether it's African-Americans or the unborn or children or whoever it is, if any group of people is being treated unjustly, I think Christians should at some level say, this isn't right, this isn't the way it's supposed to be, and try to change that somehow. Um, I don't really, I'm not really going to give you the answer for what that looks like and all the different ways, but I just think those are times when we should 
question and think about what we should respond when the government is acting unjustly, whether it's to churches or to anyone else. All right, next he talks, the last thing he calls us to do is to live as free slaves, right? He, first, he tells us to live as people who are free, and then like two phrases later, he says, but live as servants or slaves of God. And so those two things feel like a contradiction, right? You're free, but you're also a slave. You're also a servant. And so this is kind of the gospel connection this morning, that once you were slaves to sin, and when you were slaves to sin, you were ruled by your sinful desires, your sinful, selfish, fleshly desires. And so you weren't really free, even though you thought you were. You were being pulled along by your desires, whatever that may have been in the moment. Whatever you were trying to seek in that moment was what was actually controlling you. But when you became a believer in Christ, when you trusted that God sent Jesus to the earth to live as a man, and he lived a perfect, righteous life, and then he died on the cross as a sacrifice for your sins, as you believe that and as you give your life over to him, it severs the hold that sin has on you. It frees you, and for the first time, you actually have a choice whether to follow your desires or to follow something else, which are God's desires, which slowly become your desires as you seek Him, as you trust in Him, as you follow Him. And so you're now free to serve something besides yourself. And because you are free, you can choose to submit. You can choose to be a servant. Because freedom that we've gotten, that he gives us, isn't a license to sin, which is what he kind of hides in the middle of this, right? You don't get to say, well, I'm a believer and my sins are forgiven and all my sins will be forgiven so I can do whatever I want and then I just ask for forgiveness at the end and everything's okay, right? That's not what he's telling us to do. Galatians 5 talks about this. It says, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, And through love, serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Freedom in Christ is not an opportunity to sin or to do evil or to say, I can do whatever I want, and it doesn't matter because I'll be forgiven. But you've been freed from bondage to sin so that you can become a slave or a servant to God. Romans 6.22 kind of echoes this same thing. It says, but now you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Right? We submit to God and we become servants of other things because that's what he's asking us to do. Right? But we don't submit to God in the same way we submit to everything else. Right? We submit to God fully, wholeheartedly, without question. Right? Because he is good, he is honest, he is true, he is merciful, he is full of grace. And so we can trust God with anything at all times and just follow him. Right? But when it comes to governing authorities or other things that he asks us to submit to, I think it's okay sometimes to question and to evaluate if it lines up with what God really wants us to do and with other principles in Scripture. And so because we are free in Christ, we can follow God's directions. We can do what he's asking us to do, which includes, in this case, submitting to government authorities. And so Peter wraps this up by giving us kind of a quick summary of the whole thing in verse 17. 
right? First, he says, honor everyone, right? We're all made in the image of God, so we all deserve honor and respect regardless of race, religion, background, economic status, political affiliation. All people are made in God's image. End of story. We all deserve honor and respect, so everyone should be honored. Next, he calls us to love the brothers and sisters, we are called to love those who are with us in Christ, right? We've just talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, loving your brothers and sisters in Christ is not new to you, so I'm not really going to explain that or spend a lot of time there. You guys get that that's what we should be doing. Next, he says, fear God, right? Worship God, be in awe of God, see him for his greatness, <clears throat> his creating power, his majesty, his unconditional grace, his loving mercy, and his sacrificing strength that was demonstrated in sending his son to die for us. And then lastly, he says, honor the emperor. Right? Respect and follow the governing authorities because God has placed them there. They also are God's image bearers who have been given authority for our good and our safety. Will you guys pray with me this morning? God, we come before you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We do thank you for the freedom just to gather here and to not have to worry about what we're saying or what we're doing or somebody coming in and, and shutting us down or rounding us up or anything like that. So we thank you for our freedom. We thank you for ordaining that we would be born and live in a place where we do have freedom of religion. God, I pray especially this morning as we're just talking about um, our governing authorities and, and what they should do and why should we, we should listen to them, that you would give them wisdom. You would give them your wisdom and not just the wisdom of the world, um, which quickly falls apart or turns against each other. And, and wisdom is determined by um, what symbol was before your name as a politician, right? But you would give it wisdom for how they can care for all of us together that the problems that we're facing, that the, the crisis we're up against, the pandemic that we're in, that people would be on the same page to lead us through it together. That you would, you would just change people's hearts in our leadership to want to work together, to want to do what's best for all of us, to lead us well in the way that you have designed for them to lead us. <clears throat> So God, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would be with us as we seek in this time to show what it looks like to be good citizens, that we would support where we can support, where we will um, have conversations where we think may, things may be off track, but that we would do that with grace and with love and with compassion, that we would support one another, we would love one another, we would love those who disagree with us in some of these issues. God, I pray that above all, we would live in a way that reveals you to others, that people can see who you are through the way we live, and that they, they, wouldn't, they would see your glory, your majesty, before they get face-to-face -face with you. God, that they would see it through us, or that you would open their eyes so that they could be saved on this side, so that they can be with us in heaven, because we desire for all men and women to be saved to follow you, to trust in you. And I pray that us living as good citizens will somehow be a reflection of that so that it would lead people to serve and follow you. In your name I pray.
Amen.